Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. Today, we are going to be talking about a drug. Uh, we're going to be talking about MDMA, also known as ecstasy. But uh, specifically, we're going to be getting into kind of, in this episode, what the you know breakdown of it is. How it works in chemistry, how it works in biology, what its effects are on the human body. And then we're going to do a second episode that's going to be mainly about experiments that have been conducted for, what, 30 years now? Maybe longer? Yeah. On how you can use MDMA to cure all kinds of things, or at least alleviate things from cancer to uh, uh, using it in psychotherapy and using it to help people with PTSD. Yeah, so you can think of it as a one-two approach to looking at uh, a particular drug. And if you uh, guys and gals like this, we can take the same approach with other substances in the future. Yeah, definitely. It seems like once we did the research for this, it seems like this is rife. This avenue is rife for for more research and, and episodes along these lines. You know, yeah. I'd love to do another kind of. Uh, episode that's based on the pharmacology of a designer drug or, or a commercial kind of street drug. Yeah, science-based, open-minded exploration of what the substance is, what its properties are, and then how can those properties conceivably be used uh, to our advantage in a non-recreational way. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you all uh, where you can find us and all the other things that we do. A lot of people that we encounter actually think that the podcast is the only thing that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is, but we actually have blog posts and articles that we write every week uh, that are available on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Robert and I and Joe are also all working for How Stuff Works still, and we write articles for the new How Stuff Works Now site, and Robert's in, uh, doing videos for them as well. That's right. What was the last one? Uh, that was uh, It was about the um, God Helmet, right, which we've talked about doing on the show? Yeah, that's the most recent one to come out, but yeah, it's generally something kind of weird and sciencey, and I generally put together one a week. So if you want to you know, find out all this other stuff about us, or you just want to engage with us directly, we're on social media all over the place. You can interact with us on Facebook, Twitter. Twitter and Tumblr, and also every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time, we do uh, Periscope, uh, where you can talk to us for like 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, we just hang out in front of an iPad and chat with our audience. Hey, and if you want to support the show, uh, here's something you can do. Uh, give us a little love on iTunes if you happen to listen to us through iTunes. We have a lot of uh, reviews on there. A lot of them are pretty old. Help us out. Help the algorithm. Give us a little positive uh, review there. Give us a little love. We'd greatly appreciate it. Okay, so let's get into MDMA. First of all, there's a lot of preconceived notions about this drug. And in particular, uh, we, we were talking about this before the show, that there's preconceived notions on both sides, right? Which there's the anti-drug side, the mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, this has to be illegal side. And then there's the... The, the side that's like, this is going to expand your mind and open up new horizons to you that you weren't at all aware of um, and and change your life side, kind of, right? Yeah, because, yeah, on one side you have the, the anti-drug, war on drugs um, mm-hmm. statements. And then, uh, and then yeah, on the, the recreational side of it, you see basically two different types of messaging, right? You see yeah. individuals who are perhaps overemphasizing the spiritual qualities of a particular substance. Right. And this goes around the board for a number of of, uh, different um, drugs. Yeah, sure. But then you also see myths about its origin, myths about what it does, myths about the potential negative side effects. And, uh, you know, between all of this, there's uh, certainly a more objective view of what it is, where it came from, 
and what it can potentially do in a beneficial uh, means. So our goal in these episodes is going to be to kind of drill down between those lines and debunk some of this stuff or, or explain some of these stuff, uh, some of this stuff a little bit more thoroughly, cleanly. And I think a good place for us to start is um, with the journal entries of a guy named Alexander Shulgin, who we'll talk more about later. But he is considered the godfather of ecstasy, the godfather of MDMA. Uh, and these are his journal entries published in his book, Peak Hall, about his first time uh, after he synthesized uh, MDMA taking it. This is, I believe, in the 70s. So um, we've got two quotes here. This first one I'm going to read. This is from his journal entry on uh, taking 100 milligrams. He says, MDMA intrigued me because everyone I asked about it who had used it answered the question, what's it like in the same way? And they said, I don't know. So what happened? They would say nothing. And now I understand those answers. I, too, think nothing happened. But something seemed changed. Before the window opened completely, I had some somatic effects, a tingling sensation in the fingers and temples, a pleasant sensation that wasn't distracting. However, just after that, there was a slight nausea and a dizziness similar to a little bit too much alcohol. All these details disappeared as I walked outside. My mood was light and happy, but with an underlying conviction that something significant was about to happen. There was a change in perspective both in the near visual field and in the distance. My usually poor vision was sharpened. That's something that's really interesting to me. Uh, and, and that he caught on to that immediately, because that's, mm-hmm. that's a side effect that isn't, that isn't well known. I saw details in the distance that I could not normally see. After the peak experience had passed, my major state was one of deep relaxation. I felt that I could talk about deep or personal subjects with special clarity, and I experienced some of the feeling one has after a second martini that one is discoursing brilliantly and with a particularly acute analytical power. So that's that, that's his first, like he, he synthesized it, uh, and as we'll get into later, he basically always started with with small doses. He, I think he starts sometimes with quite a bit smaller than 100 milligrams. Mm-hmm. But at the 100 milligram, this is where he started to really experience this mental clarity. Yeah. The one certainly gets a sense, if you've ever heard uh, like a, an album review where an individual is maybe chewing a little more than they bit off, yeah. as if maybe the there's less substance to really focus on and he's having to really reach to find it. Yeah. Um, you get a sense of that at the 100 milligram level. Something that's worth keeping in mind about these descriptions, too, is that uh, Peacall was written in the 90s, a good 20 years after he took this. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he took his journal entries and kind of spiced them up a little yeah. bit, you know, added a little poetry. All right, so... The next entry is from uh, when he tried um, MDMA at the 120 milligram level. And uh, you'll see a, a, a bit of a difference here. Quote, I feel absolutely clean inside, and there is nothing but pure euphoria. I have never felt so great or believed this to be possible. The cleanliness, clarity, and marvelous feeling of solid inner strength continued throughout the rest of the day and evening and through the next day. I am overcome by the profundity of the experience and how much more powerful it was than previous experiences for no apparent reason other than a continually improving state of being. All the next day, I felt like a citizen of the universe rather than a citizen of the planet, completely disconnecting time and flowing easily from one activity to the next. And again, these are from Alexander Shulgin's book, Peak Hall, which is uh, subtitled A Chemical Love Story. We're, we're going to talk more about Shulgin later because he, on his own, is just totally fascinating. 
But uh, there's another quote that, that you put in here that's from that book, which is MDMA, it was beginning to be apparent, could be all things to all people. And it's kind of interesting because uh, it, it hasn't now or late until until recently with what you know what we're going to be talking about towards the end of these two episodes about uh the 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 i guess medical applications medical and therapeutic applications but it is it is all things i you know what i'll take it back it's all things to all people and that like everybody kind of brings their own thing to it yeah and that's part of the problem as we'll discuss that's yeah. one of the reasons that uh that legitimate exploration of mdma fell out of favor uh because it became this counterculture thing. It became this recreational uh, pharm- pharmacological vehicle. And I actually have one quick quote that I want to read just to to drive home yeah. kind of the um, the other end of the pool. And uh, this is from a UK disco DJ, DJ Harvey, born DJ, ba- <laughs> uh, born Harvey Bassett. Yeah. He says, quote, you can't understand the blues until you've had your heart broken and you can't understand my music until you've had group sex on ecstasy. <laughs> uh, unquote. So that that's yeah. the kind of quote where it, it instantly makes you think, oh, okay, maybe I'm less into this idea of MDMA as this right. this pure window into ourself. Um, yeah, it helps perpetuate a sort of mythology about it. Yeah, and uh, we and subculture. we should talk a little about about the mythology because yeah. I'm thinking we largely have three types of individuals out there. Yeah, they're the individuals who have some level of experience with MDMA, with ecstasy, Molly, Adam, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yep. And then, and then there are individuals who maybe have never heard of this before, yeah. but I think for the most part, you're going to have that group who have encountered it time and time again in movies and on TV shows. So many TV yeah. shows. It's become a standard trope. It's like giving birth to a baby in an elevator. Yeah, it really did. I think probably the nineties was when that uh, took off the most. Um, Robert, Robert posted to the, again, another reason why you should follow us on social media. We occasionally throw out questions to the audience for these episodes. Robert asked our audience yesterday, uh, for examples of these from TV. And my wife, of all people, uh, was one of the people who posted, uh, this example from Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, she was the one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, um, uh, when, uh, what was his name? Brandon? Was he the main character on 90210? I can't remember. The, uh, there was Slater. Uh, can't, yeah, no, no, that's I'm the other lost. show. Oh, okay. that's the Saved by the Bell show. Okay, yeah, I get this. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, 90210, he dated this girl for a little while who was like kind of a, a bad girl who wore a leather jacket and had mm-hmm. bleached hair and like, and of course, like she wanted to do MDMA. And so there's a whole episode about, about his experience with that. And, <laughs> and, and that, you know, you know, frankly, uh, I think a lot of these TV examples uh, perpetuate one of the, w- one side or the other of the, these uh, stereotypes that we've been talking about. Yeah, it's either like the crazy um, rave person. Mm-hmm. Uh, instantly think of the the episode of Spaced, yeah. the classic British uh, show. We had the the raver character. I think he was like a bike courier. It's uh, his name's Tires. I rewatched <laughs> this episode last night because it's one of my favorite episodes of Spaced. And when we all day doing the research for this, I just had tires in my head and mm-hmm. the scene with um, Nick Frost all in like army gear at a rave doing ecstasy <laughs> and kind of like p- pointing fake guns at the audience and shooting at them. And then he like puts a fake gun in his mouth and everybody's clapping. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But yeah, that's the other side, which is the like, this is so amazing. It makes you feel so great. Mm-hmm. And even at the very end, tires the bike courier, like he leaves and the voiceover says, my job is done here. <laughs> Or my work is done here. So you have that, and then you have sort of the comic, oops, I took ecstasy kind of trope. And then uh, an increasingly uh, dominant trope that that I see in a lot of uh, series these days is is, uh, one of more of a shamanistic 
yeah. uh, ecstasy experience where the characters are are learning something about themselves. I think uh, there's an episode of Six Feet Under that uh, okay. that dealt with this especially. Where um, I think I remember this. It's David who takes it, right? It may be more than one character okay. because I think the mother ends up Oh, taking, yeah, yeah, she accidentally takes it too. Yeah, yeah. it's been a while and since. And she ends up having that. this profound experience mm-hmm. and uh, this, you know, experiences this openness with the world, which, which I think ties in rather nicely with some of the, um, the objective material that we're going to look at here. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, there's a, we have a small list. This is not, uh, not an all complete. Everything. I'm sure there's far more than this. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but here are just a few. Uh, we've seen, Ecstasy, MDMA, play into episodes of Transparent. Excellent show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the Carrie Diaries. That's, I don't know that That's show. like a Sex in the oh, City spinoff, Oh, is that the, like, it's like Sex in the City prequel, right? She's in high yeah. school, I think. Okay. <laughs> How to Make It in America, Orphan Black, Skins, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Peep Show. Um, You're I, a big fan. I still haven't seen Peep uh, Show yet, well, but you've recommended it to me. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there is. I can't remember precisely... What happened? But I, I, if, no, I do remember what happened, and I can't mention it here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so there's Peep Show, Workaholics, Californication, Party Down. Yeah, that was a good ecstasy episode. Yeah, it is. I like that one. Eastbound and Down, um, Looking, and uh, yeah, and just so many more. Yeah, I, and, and and it's funny. A lot of those examples are kind of more recent, actually, and mm-hmm. and I. I gravitate to that 90210 example because that's what I remember in the 90s, the like kind of <laughs> like after school special yeah. plot that's like, all right, somebody's going to get you to try to take this and they're going to tell you that it's going to feel so good, huh. but watch what really happens, you know? Like before we came into the studio, I was talking to Joe about this and Joe says to me, oh, are you guys going to talk about uh, the myth that it puts holes in your brain. And I was like, I've never even heard of that. And, and sure enough, like Joe had heard this whole myth growing up that, you know, you take ex- ecstasy and it'll literally chew through your brain matter, huh. apparently. So it's, Which, it, as far as I can tell from the research is not true. Right. It, it's interesting though that in just looking at the, the television portrayals, we see this, yeah. uh, this change from the, the anti-drug messaging. It's just, this is something evil and awful stay away yeah. from it to where it is portrayed as more of a like a rite of passage as this really more of a shamanistic experience even if the characters engaging in the shamanistic experience are uh, not prepared uh for the experience yeah I, I guess like what i would like to see a move more towards and from reading the research on this definitely like the the scholars who are studying this seem to be in this area is understanding the chemical and the chemistry and how it interacts with human biology as if like the brain is like a machine run on chemicals, which it it is, you know, uh, and how those are, how those kind of work together. Right. Yeah. That seems like a much more mature approach to this to me than, than one side or the other. And, and, uh, and hopefully we can kind of, you know, bring that here, but also obviously we're going to dip our toes into, into the pop culture examples because that's what we're all familiar with. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let's, let's go ahead and dive in. When we're talking about, MDMA and ecstasy. First of all, ecstasy, ecstasy is, of course, the, the street variant, right? This is yeah. the pill version. And uh, generally speaking, there's MDMA in there, but uh, there are probably other properties in there as well. Yeah, I mean, let's admit it. Like, who knows who's making this stuff unless you're making it yourself? Yeah, it's uh, coming from a lab on another continent. Yeah. 
it's it, it's kind of an unknown quantity. One and, thing that was interesting that I saw in the research, though, is that MDMA, among many street drugs, is is known for its purity, mm-hmm. uh, and that it, it wasn't until I believe like the late '90s or or no mid '90s that uh the purity was in question when they would test it. It was you know significantly lower than like 90%. But since the mid 2000s, when they've been testing it, it's always been 90 to 100%. So I don't want to perpetuate like this fear that like, oh yeah, somebody cut like PCP into your MDMA or what, who knows, whatever, you know. All right. So let's talk about it. Uh, MDMA, the, 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 the substance itself, MDMA stands for methylene dioxymethamphetamine, and it's a synthetic psychoactive drug. It's chemically similar to the stimulant methamphetamine and the hallucinogen mescaline. It produces feelings of increased energy, euphoria, emotional warmth, uh, distortions in time, perception, tactile experiences. Interestingly enough, you, you don't see these, um, these experiences described Generally, as um, as states of ecstasy, like it's really yeah. kind of a misnomer to even call it that. Yeah, it's more I, I that euphoric. Too. It's more openness. It's more like the self becomes permeable, and uh, you're allowed to interact with the world a little more. That's another myth that I think is perpetuated by TV and movies a little bit too about it. Right? Is mm-hmm. that like everybody just wants to have sex the minute they take <laughs> MDMA because it's ecstasy, right? And that's not necessarily the case. There is a um, Another TV example, which I've mentioned this show several times on on uh, on our show, uh, Millennium, the the 1990s show starring Lance Henriksen, uh, the very first episode of that show, I believe, or maybe it was like the the third or fourth, featured a couple uh-huh. who took MDMA and they were just so out of it and so in love with each other that a serial killer was able to capture them and kill them both. You know, <laughs> it was just it, ridiculous. But uh, so, anyways, it's important to remember that the. This drug, it, basically, it's a central nervous system stimulant, right, when you get down to it. And uh, it is particularly connected to the serotonin transporters in our brain. We're going to drill down and look at that further uh, later. But let's let's continue on with the basics. Yeah, it's so, as I've said, it's a, it's a unique combination of both a stimulant and, uh, and a, a psychotomimetic uh, substance. Uh, so some people actually tend to classify it as an enactogen or an empathogen. Uh, all due to its power to induce emotional uh, communion. Again, this sense of oneness, uh, emotional openness in the form of empathy and sympathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, so it's pretty popular. And uh, the, we know this because not just from, from it showing up on TV and movies, but actually population sh- surveys show that it's the third most widely used illegal drug in the world after cannabis and cocaine, which surprised me. I, I guess I... I guess I was surprised that cocaine was so much higher too. But um uh the, well I mean the 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 various effects that we've discussed I mean without getting into any of the the legal side of it or the yeah. or the, the the ramifications like who wouldn't want to feel that way if someone said hey right. let me just ask you one quick question would you like to feel like this and you would say yes I'd like to hear some more information about what you're proposing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's like a, a somebody handing out pamphlets at the trade station. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I, I was talking with a friend last night actually, who uh, experienced using MDMA in the '70s, actually around the same time that Shulgin mm-hmm. was first experimenting with it, and uh, and that was kind of the conclusion that you know he came to is that you know well people would say you know pe- people. Even before there was a usage of it for psychoanalysts and therapy applications, they would say, well, do you want to feel good? You know, and, and, and lots of people out there don't want to feel sad, don't want to be angry, don't want to be lonely. 
Sure, I want to feel good. But as we'll get to, this isn't a particularly addictive drug either. So it's not like cocaine in the sense where it's like, you're going to feel good and then you're going to have to keep yeah. feeding that monkey, right? You know? Um, it's like this is more of a situation where you're going to feel really good and then you're probably going to want to take it again in a month or two. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Maybe never, depending, you know, it's, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the, those properties. In fact, to give you a, sort of a, you know, broad look at how many people have potentially done it, European monitoring, the, the European monitoring center for drugs and drug addiction surveyed uh, all of Europe for how much they had used MDMA, how much the population used MDA, MDMA. And they found that people between the ages of 16 and 65, 8.6% of them acknowledged that they had used it. But like you said, the majority only used it a few times. Regular use is very rare. It's very rare that somebody is taking ecstasy all the time. The vast majority of individuals seem to have taken it 10 times or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That was the average. All right, so let's get into the origin story. This uh, MDMA is a synthetic substance. Mm-hmm. It does not occur in nature. So, it, right, you it, can't go pick MDMA in a, a field of flowers. Right, a, a, <clears throat> a shaman wandering in the woods did not discover MDMA. Yeah. Um, a, a monk uh, <clears throat> picking mushrooms in the in the hills didn't discover MDMA. MDMA was created in a laboratory. Yep, yep. and in a very interesting <laughs> laboratory situation, actually. Yeah. Uh, so the origins of MDMA only go back to around 1912, and specifically. Typically, you have to go to uh, to the laboratories of the German pharmaceutical company Merck. It's here that German chemist Anton Kolisch uh, was uh, actually discovered the substance, and uh, it, it's we, we know next to nothing about this individual. We know that he died in 1916. But that's about it. Um, we don't know when he was born. N- not a lot of uh, forthcoming biological uh, biographical information about yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and there's this really interesting study that we read for for this that was all the study was about was drilling down, going through all of Merck's archives to try to figure out what the exact origin story was. And, it, you know, basically they came up with what we're telling you wasn't a whole lot more on the record. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful paper. We'll link to uh, a copy of the full paper on uh, the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But it was published in 2006 in the German journal uh Pharmazie. And uh, the, the English title is The Origin of MDMA, Ecstasy, Separating the Facts from the Myth. Uh, and uh, some of the myths, just to, to get this out, out there, there's a, there are a couple different myths relating to different actual chemists, one of yep. whom was a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> uh, so a lot of people like to gravitate towards that. Yeah, they want there to be like a like a more fantastic origin story. Yeah, like like they want to know the guy responsible as opposed to um, poor Anton here who's just completely lost to history. Yeah. Um the the soldier myth is also very uh attractive. There's this misconception that um uh that it was a, you know, it's some sort of a an army uh uh, project, either a right. U.S. Army project or or a, or a German military project, trying to create some sort of uh, you know soldier enhancement drug. And while it's true that pretty much the military has always been interested in ways to, of course, improve uh, soldier performance, and certainly in the age of aviation, there's always been an interest in trying to uh, keep your soldiers awake, develop, yeah. develop stimulants, etc. But um, there's a there's basically this myth originates from just confusing the origin, saying all right, 1912 Germany, and then thinking about uh, yeah, U.S. Army experiments in the 1950s, yeah. and getting it all kind of mixed up. Because ultimately, 
ecstasy is probably not the drug of choice when it comes to sending soldiers out into the field. Yeah, it's it's probably not what you want to be giving uh, people in the field when their job is to kill people. Yeah, right? yeah, you don't want them to feel a profound the openness with the world. Yeah, well, and, and I think it's also worth pointing out that as far as I can tell from the research, the only application uh, for military use that is now being used is for soldiers coming back with PTSD. That's right. And that there are soldiers who are being recommended for clinical trials of using MDMA to treat PTSD. But we'll, we'll get into that in the next episode. So if, if you look back at the original German Merck patents, and uh, that's uh, certainly what the, they did in this 2006 uh, uh, Pharmacy uh, Journal uh, paper, uh, you look back at these original uh, patents. The first one mentions no specific purpose or medical indication, such as the use of, as an appetite suppressant for yeah. soldiers, as is sometimes cited. It was just a, quote, procedural patent for compounds, which are important key precursors for therapeutics. Okay. And in the second patent, MDMA is mentioned only as a byproduct and chemical intermediate in uh, one uh, in in the in one of the pathways uh, that started from uh, safrol. That's a sassafras derived uh, precursor to MDMA. Hmm. Also a precursor to an insecticide and a fragrance. So right. essentially, the, you know, these chemists are just they're exploring and they're they're creating this roadmap of chemical interactions. And along the way, you know, they're in the car. Anton uh, is there and he says, "Hey, that's MDMA right there. I don't know anything about it, but there it is." And it's kind of it's noted in a, a ledger, and then everyone keeps going. Um, Careers at these chemical companies in the early 20th century sound fascinating to me. Uh, yeah. Both both Merck and then reading uh, later uh, Dow Chemical is another place where psychedelics were developed under the auspices of commercial uh, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And it, Especially when you're talking German chemists, because yeah. some of the more profound uh, uh, ad, uh, advancements mm-hmm. in chemistry have come out of German chemistry labs yeah. in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. But who knows? Like they were, for the most part, like you said, they're trying to design pesticides or something. Or, yeah. You know. And it just shows up as a curiosity. In yeah. fact, uh, um, Merck's uh, patent number 274350 does not patent MDMA as a substance. Oh. So there seemed little or no interest in it. Yeah. So it was effectively shelved. It was not tested uh, pharmacolo- pharmacologically. And as such, nobody knew what it did or what its side effects were. It wasn't until 1927, and that's when uh, Merck's Dr. Max Oberlin, mm-hmm. and we don't know much about him either. He was born in 1896, and we don't know when he died, according to the uh, the pharmacy uh, paper that we referenced earlier. Okay. But he resumed study of MDMA and observed its, quote, pure sympathetic effects and noted that it should be explored, though, again, it was shelved due to the high costs of methylamine. So we don't have a lot of details, but Oberlin probably didn't conduct experiments with humans, but we just don't know the details of what his research methods were. But somehow yeah. he knew that there was something empathic about it. And this is where I, I threw this out on, on Facebook privately, but I think there's a lot of of potential here, right? Because we have the German chemist creating all these crazy uh, and and highly influential substances. They're accidentally creating MDMA. Imagine if you uh, you you had a sort of a cabaret era pre-war period piece, period piece yeah. and 
and here's this chemist who introduces very fictionally yeah, um, right. MDMA into the the cabaret era club scene. <laughs> yeah, he's it, it, you're right. It's like German madmen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like he's working in like a kind of stodgy uh, chemical company by day, but then at night he's he's slipping people. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody out there MDMA. is listening and you're trying to develop a show yeah. for AMC, yeah, we got a pitch for you. Yeah, this is our pitch. Pick it up. Uh, we'll we'll talk. We'll talk. Well, the the problem with Coalition and Oberlin is that they didn't just make this stuff in their own backyard and take it themselves, right. which is uh, what the the secondary synthesis story that we know is. of. That yes, we know that of. we know of. I'm holding out hope. There must yeah, there must have been something between Oberlin in 1927 and Alexander Sh- Alexander Shulgin, who we've talked about uh, already. Uh, but I'll expand upon. Yeah, Shulgin. as far as we know. Um, and yeah. until AMC fills in the holes, it's got to be an origin um, story. Yeah, <laughs> it just seems that MDMA just lingered in obscurity for decades. What if the reason why we don't know when Max Oberlin died is because he's still alive, and the MDMA has been keeping him alive? <laughs> <laughs> he's over a hundred years old, fueled by ecstasy. <laughs> no, that's totally not possible based on the research that we saw. All right, so Alexander Shulgin, this guy is quoted, like I said at the top, as being the godfather of ecstasy. And here's why. Shulgin, like I said, basically cooked this stuff in his backyard and tested it on himself. And before I get to that, I think that we need to do a little bit of a setup on who Shulgin was. He passed away, unfortunately, last year. Uh, But who he was and what his methodology was and why he was the guy to do this. So Shulgin was born in California in 1925. He uh, went to Harvard when he was 15 years old. Okay, so he's one of these wonderkin geniuses. Mm-hmm. He drops out so he can join the U.S. Navy, uh, and he claimed that while he was in the Navy, he memorized the Encyclopedia on Chemistry, uh, and went back, got his formal education finished, got a doctorate in biochemistry from the University of California in 1955. He goes and works for the Dow Chemical Company. So it sounds somewhat similar to the Merck situation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he is eventually working there producing pesticides. And he invents this stuff called Zectrin, which uh, was advertised as the world's first biodegradable pesticide. And it went over really well. And basically, Dow was like, all right, do whatever you want now. Like, we're so happy with your results on that. Go go to it. Wonder We wonder what you cook up next. <laughs> Literally kind of a Walter White scenario here. Yeah. Uh, and, and he... Shulgin says, okay, well, I'm going to devote all of my studies to psychedelic chemistry. And he starts publishing in Nature and Journal of Organic Chemistry, talking about all of these drugs that he's inventing in Dow's labs. And when they find out what he's up to, their board of directors is like, no, this is going to be bad publicity for us. So keep in mind, this is the 50s. Yeah. Um, so that so the ca- the full uh, counter culture collapse yeah. has not occurred yet, but no. but clearly there the, the the roots are already present. Yeah, and so he eventually leaves the company in 1966, and he says, "You know what? I'm going to set up my own home lab and uh, work out." He's going to freelance out, out of the yeah. house, and basically he's a consultant to research labs and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, here's what he basically did: he invented hundreds of psychedelics. Uh, testing each new compound on himself. And the way that he did it was he would take the minimum amount required to have an effect, and then he would gradually increase the dosage. So those those uh, quotes from his uh, book, Peacall, that we read at the beginning of the show, the, the, that's his typical process, right, is that yeah. he would go, okay, so I need to take uh, this many milligrams for to feel any effect, and then I'll gradually increase the dosage. 
And I think that's a, there's a good lesson there for everyone. Uh, even if you're just dealing with something like, uh, like alcohol, a legally yeah. consumable product or coffee, don't just go diving in and getting the, uh, the double, triple espresso. Right. Start small, Start small and work your way up and see, see what works. Well, Shogun's a fascinating character because I mean, so he tested all of these psychedelics out on himself and he, it, it was like very fastidious about how he kept his, uh, his notes, his journals, all this. Uh, but then, to confirm his data, what he would do is he would share the substances with his wife, Anne, and he would find out what Anne's experiences were, and he would record those. And then, if they determined that further study was required, they invited a, quote, research group of friends to come over. And they, they would do these sessions for, like, maybe two or three days uh, where they would test their reactions to whatever he had invented that week, right? And, and maybe it was MDMA, maybe it was something else. I mean, like I said, there's hundreds those uh, must have been interesting um, research groups to attend because I guess you probably, I mean, he, you probably had some idea of what to expect, but yeah. you're just, you're, you're very much a psychonaut. You're very much they going into that the unknown. term, I think. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's a documentary about Shulgin, I believe is on YouTube, and they, they talk about these uh, parties quite a bit. And I believe, I might I might be wrong here, I wrote about Shulgin once before for, for How Stuff Works, uh, and we'll link to that as well on the podcast page, but... um my understanding was that Shulgin had uh, one rule, which was basically that, you know, well, first of all, they weren't allowed to take any medications for a couple of days beforehand. So right. There wouldn't be any, any kind of complications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, they weren't allowed to have sex with people that they weren't already established in a relationship with. So they would be there for two to three days. And whatever it was that they were taking in and, and his first name, his first name was Alexander, but everybody called him Sasha. Uh, Sasha, basically their rule was like, no, you can't just go off with somebody else. Uh, we don't want any kind of drama being reintroduced to this thing. But again, another great AMC show in the making, I think. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And one that we definitely have far more biographical information to go yeah, over for. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, yeah. Uh, so, okay. Shogun created over 200 unique drugs to stimulate the mind doing this. He tested everything, speeding it up, slowing it down, tapping into empathy. The DEA actually gave his garden laboratory a license to produce Schedule One substances so he could be an expert in their cases, right? He was like their go-to guy for stuff they would find out in the field, and he would he would consult with them. In fact, uh, I don't have the, the notes here in front of me, but he was like best friends with the guy who was the head of his local DEA chapter. Huh. They worked very closely together. So we have a really curious individual here, one who is he seems to exist right at the crossroads between the counterculture um, drug exploration and the hard-nosed uh, you know, precursor to what would ultimately become the war on drugs, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, my understanding, uh, his position was basically like, I'm just creating this stuff and I'm testing it for educational and scientific purposes. What people do with it commercially is up to them, and it's not his responsibility if something goes wrong. Um, so... That brings us to MDMA because he was criticized highly for uh, not only creating, resynthesizing MDMA. He didn't create it. It was created at Merck, mm-hmm. but publishing how to make it and yeah. and uh, letting letting other people know, you know, basically the recipe. Yeah. I mean, he's just to go back to the road analogy. He is mapping the chemical highway mm-hmm. and you don't have to go down every road. He's not saying drive down here. You don't have to go there. Yeah. But this is the map. So Shulgin and MDMA. He first synthesized it in 1965, but he didn't try it. So actually, if you look at the numbers there, he was still at Dow at the Mm -hmm. time that he first synthesized it. 
But he didn't try it then. Again, I think there was like a, eh, what, what is this for? Right? Kind of thing. Right. Uh, and then in the 1970s, he heard about its, quote, special effect from a friend. And this makes me wonder to what extent there is, there, there is a, a There's hidden gotta history. Be something. Between, yeah. uh, you know, between its, its supposed disappearance and what the, the 20s and yeah, 30s. Yes, somebody was making it in the background and using it. Yeah. Uh, so he resynthesizes it and tests it on himself in this usual manner that I described in September of 1976. And that's where we got those journal notes that we, we, we read you earlier from Pical. Uh, and then along with a guy named David Nichols, he publishes the first paper on the pharmacological action of MDMA in human beings. And this is why people sometimes refer to him either as the father of MDMA or the godfather of MDMA. Um, Pecal is his, his his most widely known book, and it stands for Phenylethylamines I Have Known and Loved. And it's sort of <laughs> part memoir, part cookbook on how to make these drugs, and includes instructions on how to synthesize all the things in there. there I believe there's like 179 different substances in it. And then uh, he followed this up with a book, Tecal, which is Tryptamines I've Known and Loved. Similar kind of thing, just looking at a different base group. Um but it got to the point where, you know, these books were published and they are widely known. I first heard about Shulgin, I don't know, maybe 96 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, you know, Pecal was published in the early 90s. So it had been out for a little while by then. But I first heard about it, like, hanging out with some guys at MIT who, like, had found it on the Internet and were talking about how they were all, like, engineers or chemistry right. majors and trying to figure out how they were going to cook this stuff up because they were fascinated by this guy. Um it's like the chemical necronomicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, and so uh, you can understand why, like, any time if he gave a word of praise, even the slightest praise to a drug in his books or any of his other writings, it was almost guaranteed that it would gain popularity. So this also came with media scrutiny and outrage and that this guy had created this horrible thing and was destroying the world. But like I said, he believed his research should be openly available. This guy was like, like I said, like, peak all totally available online. He it wasn't in it for the money. Uh, because of the educational reasons for the purposes of people being able to learn from it. Yeah. And when you, the interviews with this guy, especially video interviews, uh, that I've seen online, he, first of all, he seems like this is such a tender, genuine guy, but also. Big white beard, right? Yeah. He's got a very, he looks like what you would expect. He kind of wears like Hawaiian short sleeve shirts <laughs> and, and has a huge white beard, but he's also just so smart and so fascinated with just the world of chemistry and 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 putting all the parts together in his head you can see the gears going when he's talking about it so he it, it's easy to want to compare him to people like Timothy Leary or Terence sure. Lilly but yeah. but his focus uh was 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 almost exclusively on the chemistry on that chemical map not what can i do with it to speak to beings from another dimension or anything of that Yeah, nature. I didn't get that impression, although, you know, he was certainly continuing to create new stuff and test it on himself. Mm-hmm. I think probably up until he died in 2014, I think I think it was lung cancer that, mm. that caused him to pass away. But um, in 1993, the whole DEA thing flipped and agents raided his home and lab, probably because of the publication of PCAL, uh, revoked his license and fined him $25,000. So... That kind of relationship sort of went away, although I'm sure probably behind the scenes there were still guys coming to him and being like, we don't understand this particular substance. You know, he's yeah, because like, he's the foremost expert in the field. He's like yeah. the Hannibal Lecter of the DEA. You know, like <laughs> they're, they're like, we don't, 
we don't get these chemical compounds, and they, they're not supposed to talk to him, but they go out and visit him on the ranch. Well, I mean, in, in, in that, to sort of go back to our detective episode we did um, mm. a few months back, he's he's in that shamanistic role. He li- he's oh, on the yeah. edge. He's between the worlds, and who do you go to when you want to understand the other world? You go to the shaman. Absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, another person who I mentioned on this show quite a bit, Warren Ellis, mm-hmm. uh, has adapted Shulgin into some of his writings. Oh, and I okay. believe there's an Iron Man comic out there in which Iron Man is having sort of like a crisis of confidence and he goes and visits a Shulgin-like figure at his estate and they <laughs> sit down and talk about, you know, the future of uh, chemistry and technology together. Huh. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. All right. You know, I think it's time we take a quick break. And when we, uh, when we come back, we're going to get into uh, the specifics of what MDMA does to the mind, does to the body, the pros, the cons. Yeah. Debunk the myths. Yeah. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. All right, we're back. So what does MDMA do and how does it do it? Well, we're, we're going to try to not get too lost in the details here because you're ultimately talking about chemistry and the, and biochemistry and you can really go down the deep end. It's certainly above my head. And, mm-hmm. and that was one thing when I was looking at the research, which was kind of, okay, how do we translate this for our audience into something that's digestible? And my rule of thumb was sort of like, if I'm reading this and my eyes start glossing over and I can't figure out what it is, it might be best to sort of try to paraphrase that in another way. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, just to read a bit from that German paper that I referenced earlier, uh, like a very sort of clinical uh, description of what MDMA does is as follows. Quote, MDMA's effects mainly result from an increased synaptic availability of serotonin 5-HT, based on serotonin reuptake inhibition and serotonin release from presynaptic storages. The stimulant and emotional effects are mainly produced by the acute release of 5-HT, while the hallucinogenic effects of MDMA are mainly evoked by direct interactions with postsynaptic 5-HT-2A receptors, similar to LSD, mescaline, etc. Right, so this is what you talked about earlier, the, the MDMA sort of balances the stimulant effects of methamphetamines with the hallucinogenic effects of mescaline. Right. To break it down a little more, okay, you have, you're talking about euphoria, blood pressure, um, effects on your, you know, your appetite, your attention. Uh, these are all regulated by uh, a group of neurotransmitters uh, in, in just the normal, non-ecstasy taking body and brain. So the biogenic amines and the monoamine neurotransmitters. So normally neurons communicate with each other and they fire impulses through the brain via the neurotransmitters. You can think of this as it's kind of like the bank tellers, right? Right. Oh, you need uh, you need to take so much out to take care of this. All right, let me do the paperwork. Here you go. Here's the cash. Balances this stuff out for you, or at least it's supposed to, right? Right. MDMA is more like a Robin Hood bank robber going into the bank and saying, actually, I have some different <laughs> ideas about what we're going to do here. <laughs> yeah. So MDMA release, uh, increases the levels of the monoamine neurotransmitters, dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, and serotonin in the synapse. It dumps them into the, into the synapse in quantities, in quantities much larger than those seen with cocaine, uh, but it releases much more serotonin and much less dopamine uh, than amphetamines. So th- this results in a decrease in aggressiveness, an increase in body temperature, and a relatively low addiction potential. Yeah, right, which we mentioned earlier, right? Most people who've used MDMA at the most 10 is yeah. about as many times. Because as how many have. times can you just rob the bank, right? Well, yeah, and as we'll get into, there's after effects that, mm-hmm. that decrease the, the, 
the positive effects and increase the negative effects of taking MDMA. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of it's very, you know, it's very zen, that idea that experiences in life are this pendulum. And yeah. And you can have extremes on both sides, and the further you swing the pendulum over in one direction, uh, the further it has the potential to swing back in the other. So, yeah, my friend who I mentioned earlier who took this stuff in the seventies, his example was that, like, you know, shamans uh, when they take uh, hallucinogens, they're clearly they weren't making MDMA in labs and taking this stuff, but but things similar to mm-hmm. it. It's not like they were taking it every day, right? They they take it maybe once a year, and there's an elaborate ritual, and they give themselves the time to come down off of it, and they give it reverence, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they're not just going to a disco biscuit show. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Laughing a bunch of yeah. Molly. Yeah. Right. It's swinging. Uh, uh, sorry. What is it? The the pacifier thing. And we'll talk about what, uh, why dance club culture plays into this. Yeah. Yeah. It has a uh, purpose. Huge. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what are its immediate effects? Well, first of all, a typical street dose, I guess, is around 125 milligrams in a tablet. Yeah. I've also seen it as low as 100. But oh, okay. Yeah. yeah which but is yeah. around what Shulgin was taking yeah. at. Um, and most people ingest it orally, but others have, uh, taken something called MDMA bombs, which I hadn't heard of before reading about this, but apparently you take the equivalent of like two to three tablets worth, you wrap it up in paper and swallow that. So you get a, a much higher dosage all at once. Okay. Uh, and, uh, the other, uh, way to get quicker results is to either snort it or to inject it. Um, this has quicker results, but then it also has worse effects during the come down. So, what are those effects? All right. First of all, it increases your body temperature. Sometimes it gives you not hypothermia, hyperthermia. So your yeah. body temperature starts going up a lot. That's why, like, all the stereotypical examples of ravers taking MDMA, you see them drinking water all the time. Yeah, and it's also important to note that the, the hyperthermia is probably going to be um, a byproduct of environment. Are that you? Too. Yeah, if you're taking it in a you know in a living room, that's one thing. But are you? Are you in a hot room dancing all night? Yeah. Well, then that's another situation entirely. And that's what leads to a lot of feelings of dehydration with it. Some users actually drink way too much water to compensate for this. And so they develop something called hyponatremia, which is where the sodium electrolytes in your blood get diluted. And that's not good either. So studies have found actually that there's an overrepresentation of women in these cases, and they think that it's probably because they have a lower mean body weight. But who knows? Um, and it, a lot, a lot of these studies, one of the things that I thought was interesting was they sometimes they accounted for this, but sometimes they couldn't. They said, well, there's different effects on people who are part of the rave culture because, well, they're staying up late at night, they have mm-hmm. different circadian rhythms, or maybe they're taking other drugs, or, or who knows, right? Like, there's a lot of variables that are thrown in there. And yeah, some are of they them drinking alcohol? Are they combining yeah. it with, an, with another, um, with some sort of an hallucinogen? Yeah. And then ultimately, yeah, are you, are you jumping around all night in a hot room? Are you, exactly. are you suffering from sleep deprivation as well as the, uh, the come down effects of mm-hmm. ecstasy use? So yeah, it's a totally different, uh, th- my understanding from, from the research is that the, when it's taken at dance clubs, the stimulatory effects were much stronger, especially mm-hmm. because of all the environmental sights and sounds, but also when you consider the environmental effects of it being hot and all uh, what you're talking about. There was there. a study that came out in the last few years that um, posited that uh, uh, that loud music actually in- increases the effects. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so that makes sense. Uh, and, and would make sense along these lines, too. It increases your heart rate. It heightens your blood pressure. You have faster breathing. <clears throat> It also produ- produces jaw clenching and tooth grinding, which 
We we learned that there's uh, terms for these. I didn't know this. Apparently, jaw clenching not, is yeah. trismus, and tooth grinding is bruxism, which bruxism, is your stuff yeah. to blow your mind word of the week. <laughs> it's very very British sounding. Yeah, but uh, but this is why you uh, you see the whole pacifier Pacifiers. thing yeah. because not you know you're going out to a rave. You don't have time to get fitted for a mouth guard. Right. What right, are you going to yeah. do? You get a pacifier, and then you know it has the lights and doodads on it, uh-huh. and you just fit into the scene, right? So that's the sort of, you know, physiological after effects or, or immediate effects, rather. Uh, but, you know, like we said, it's increasing levels of chemicals. So it increases your cortisol levels. In fact, 11 of 12 studies have reported a significant increase of cortisol. And cortisol, just to, you know, give you a quick one uh, on it, it's important for the homeostatic control of our bodies for just our feeling of general well-being, right? So if you have low cortisol levels, you're probably not feeling particularly good about yourself or or physically feeling well. Uh, it also, as, as we mentioned earlier, reduces the serotonin transporter levels across the cerebral cortex. Now, what this does is it reverses that normal process of serotonin reuptake. So an acute dose can release up to 80% of the available serotonin that's inside your synaptic cleft. So it's just basically saying like, hey, just dump it all out. Yeah, just right? rob the bank, take all the, all the money and run. Yeah. Yeah. And it also affects dopamine, uh, noradrenaline, and other neurotransmitter systems. So, like, you know, th- this is where the mood effects come from that we all know about. They're complex and they're variable, though. They're not always euphoric. In fact, uh, they can also intensify negative emotional states. Mm-hmm. And in some instances, they increase anxiety, uh, overstimulation, panic, or the loss of personal control. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into some of its therapeutic uses in the next episode, but that's where you certainly see some uh, some negative manifestations yeah. occurring. You got to be careful with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and the other thing to pay attention to is that both positive and negative moods can appear in the same individual, right? So one person can also can be both euphoric and depressed at the same time on MDMA. Uh, and some users attribute this to the importance of having positive expectancy when you take the drug. So this kind of idea, right, that like you just got to be in the right zone, man. Like you got to you got to go into it uh, expecting happy things. Well, it's the, the very statement you see from yeah, from from uh, in raver culture. You see it in shamanistic use yeah. of uh, more ancient uh, substances and you see it in the uh, medical usage of these 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 uh, substances because they're powerful, potent uh, drugs that interact with your brain, that interact with yourself. Um, of your, course, you want to prime yourself properly. Yeah, if your brain's a car engine, like instead of putting oil into it, this is like putting I don't know jet fuel into it, right? You know, so who knows what these effects are going to be? It's gonna it's gonna be across the board, though. Uh, it also this is the, really fascinating, and we're going to talk about this more in depth as well in the next episode. But it causes apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. It especially is good at killing cells in our livers and our retinas, which is fascinating as well. Uh, basically, it can lead to fatal acute liver failure in some limited cases. Yeah, so it's, it's easy to imagine like a raver melting in a club because of this, <laughs> right, but it's, right. it's not quite so yeah, pronounced it, in a It's effect. not like all your cells are going to degrade yeah. all at once, yeah. Uh, but, but the, so, you know, we'll get into this later, but there's potential medical benefits there. So you could potentially use this for cancer therapy if you're able to direct it, uh, this program cell death at cancer cells. Uh, okay. Uh, there are other acute fatalities that are known of with MDMA, and they're from all kinds of things. Cardiac arrest, brain seizure, destruction of skeletal muscular t- tissue, and even uh, the failure of blood clotting. 
But my understanding from the literature is that these are rare cases mm-hmm. that are what you have to consider here is you're taking a unique chemical and you're and, and in some cases, like we talked about before, you don't know how pure this chemical is and you're inserting it into a unique biological machine that has all kinds of responses to, to chemicals. Right. So who knows? Maybe there's an allergy uh, that, that happens that leads to something or maybe uh, you have a weak heart. Right. And the heart rate response uh, that increases for most people ends up giving you cardiac arrest. Uh, so it, it's it's dependent on each individual and our sort of fingerprint of biochemistry. Yeah, indeed. So one takes this substance, and, and regardless of uh, the circumstance, the effects wear off. Sometimes it's described as more of a just a complete crash, right, where it's just, right? Yeah. Uh, other times it's more gradual. Certainly um, the quote that we read from Shulgin earlier described a, in a very easy glide back into a normal life, but, it, but sometimes it's just a, a sharp drop-off. Yeah, again, that pendulum has to swing back. So for uh, up to two weeks after the use of MDMA, uh, a number of side effects are, are often reported. Uh, physical side effects can include lockjaw, loss of appetite, and insomnia. And on the psychological end, side effects can include anxiety, paranoia, irritability, restlessness, difficulty focusing, a loss of interest in normally fulfilling activities, uh, you might end up having to watch a lot of Miyazaki movies on the couch. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, it, it, you, the pendulum is going to swing back the other way. The right, bank has been robbed. Exactly. All these levels have to be built back up again. Yeah, your brain now only has like 20% of the serotonin levels that it was supposed to have to be able to fulfill your everyday needs. Yeah, so during this time period, especially... You're not going to be able to take it again and experience all of its empathic qualities. If you were to take it again the next weekend, you're probably just going to benefit from the stimulant properties. Right. Right. And uh, so this is where we get into the long-term effect type thing. So there's a chronic tolerance that Shulgin actually first noticed in PCOL in his entry for MDMA. Uh, and he's very precise. Basically, uh, he, he gives the exact dosages and the times of day of consumption and how uh, that there's these different effects basically with them and at, at how the tolerance builds up in the human body so that there's fewer gains but more problems over time. And there's several studies that back this up. Uh, basically, this leads to most users quitting on their own. Um, mo- like we've said repeatedly already in this episode, most users report that they've only had a lifetime use of 10 occasions. And this is probably why, because after a while, it just doesn't do for you what it's supposed to do. In fact, I believe, was it Shulgin or somebody else who referred to it as the loss of magic? I'm not sure where the term or, uh, originated, but it's used on uh, arrowhead.org, which is always a great source for information mm-hmm. about um, about, about uh, drugs. I believe and, that and site has substances. the entire uh, P-call, antique Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, there's a loss of magic. Why are you going to keep doing it if there's less magic and you still have to deal with the, uh, the ramifications of the use? So this is your sort of... Basic long-term effect is the chronic tolerance building up, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of long-term, I guess what we would call long-term harm effects. Uh, First of all, you know, we talked about the purity. I want to make sure, like, that we get back to this. The purity level of MDMA is much higher than most street-level drugs. Uh, And it was only really in the mid-90s that there started to be purity control issues, I guess. I don't know that you call them purity control issues when it's street-level rather than, like, in a, a scientific lab. But... That's not necessarily as much of an issue in terms of the long-term harm cases. But the serotonin thing can be a significant issue as it leads to something called serotonergic 
neurotoxicity. And they've tested this in animals. And what it sounds like to me is that this, it depletes your serotonin levels so much that it leads to dysfunction in the serotonin parts of your brain. Uh, it leads to a pronounced reduction in markers for serotonin across higher brain regions. And every study of heavy users of MDMA has found that they have a significant reduction in their higher brain regions of this stuff, you know, the serotonin making. Neuroimaging shows this as well, too. So when they actually scan these people's brains, they can see this. Um, there's Okay, so that's the serotonin uh, long-term problem. There's also deficits in res- retrospective memory, which is your memory of things that happened in the past, but also of prospective memory, which is your memory uh, for the future, so you remembering to remember something down okay. the road. Uh, they've also found lots of varied results on this research because, like I said earlier, there's all these other factors at work, right? Yeah, it's basically you're messing with the cocktail of the brain, the cocktail totally. of yourself, and that's going to vary from person to person. It's going to depend on usage history, etc. Yeah, like like we said earlier with, with the people who were really into the dance scene, they may stay up later at night, and therefore they have different circadian rhythms. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to analyze their retrospective memory or their sleep deficits or something like that, you're going to get different results. Yeah. And, and this it might is, not necessarily be the MDMA. And I think this is definitely uh, important to keep in mind for anyone out there who is you know, considering trying it, is that it's going to vary. So somebody saying, hey, this is the thing to do, they don't have your same body chemistry, so they can't, only, only you can say for certain. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So on top of the memory effects, there's also known to be some cognitive effects as well. Uh, it seems to impair even people who are abstinent users who aren't using it anymore. It can impair your executive processing, your logical reasoning, problem solving, and the emotional intelligence in your brain. Uh, however, basic cognitive skills like reaction time or your attention levels or your vigilance, those are not affected. So this is what they know in terms of that. Sleep has also been slightly studied, as I mentioned earlier. There's some deficits in sleep architecture and sleep apnea, but there isn't a ton of research and there needs to be more explored there. Uh, it can also lead to psychomotor impairments in children of women who take it while they're pregnant. So there are known to be effects on children of, of uh, you know, MDMA users. And then there's one small thing, you know, there's a little bit of research done, but Shulgin mentioned this in his journal report about the complex vision. His, he said his vision got better. And there's there's studies about that and that uh, th- there's evidence for that as well. But also, you know, like I said earlier, there's also evidence that it uh, attacks the retina cells, too. So uh, there needs to be more research done in both those areas. All right. So in terms of overdose and just the key dangers, uh, I do want to drive home again that... Um, that environment plays into a lot of it. According to uh, psychiatrist Ingrid Pacey, she's a lead investigator uh, in MDMA-assisted um, therapy for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder at the University of British Columbia. She says that the MDMA-related deaths you hear about are, are all about environment. Typical dosages taken in a normal setting are perfectly safe. It's when you take it in a hot environment, dance all night, you don't hydrate, you don't sleep. That's when things get potentially dangerous. You can get into that hyperthermia area. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, if, which is totally a product of what you do while you're on the substance. substance. But as with anything, of course, uh, even water, as we already mentioned, you can consume a dangerous amount of MDMA. Uh, specifics are, are sketchy based on the material I was looking at, because, again, it's going to vary depending on who you are and what mm-hmm. your body is saying. But uh, the average ecstasy pill is... Uh, what ten to one hundred and fifty mil- uh, milligrams? Yeah, that, uh, those are the yeah the MDMA bombs. I think are maybe like two or three times that. Yeah, but yeah. 
and and uh, just for anyone who's a little uh, shaky on their metrics, uh, there's a, there are a thousand milligrams in a gram. Generally speaking, and again, this is just a, a ballpark. Yeah. Don't take this uh, as as any kind of a measure that you should apply to any kind of dosages or anything. Uh, but if you were to take one or one point five grams, uh, you would definitely be in overdose territory. Yeah, that's like taking ten tablets at once. Yeah, or 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 if it's a, a situation where it's binge consumption. So mm-hmm. if you're at a place where there's like unlimited ecstasy, yeah. and you're drinking all this water, and then you keep taking right. ecstasy, yeah. trying to keep this feeling going, that's how you could create up on this uh, this uh, overdose territory uh, rather easily. And if you are to overdose, uh, the, the typical symptoms of MDMA overdose include high blood pressure, faintness, panic attacks, loss of consciousness, and seizures. So we talked about Shulgin and, and him designing this stuff and then, you know, it eventually seeping into popular consciousness and being used really heavily in the commercial street market. But in the United States, at least, where we're based out of, its popularity in the mid-80s led to it being placed on the most restrictive category of the Federally Controlled Substances Act. So it's real illegal here. <laughs> uh, and this removed it from clinical experimentation as well as human research. Now, Shulgin was kind of bummed out about this, as you would imagine. He thought that it's going to make it uh, so that studies that like, like what he was doing would have to be conducted overseas from now on. And in, in a way, he's kind of right. A lot of the research we read was was from overseas, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, the, the right? five uh, key nations uh, involved in MAPS are, are, are outside the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you see this... Uh you see this attitude shift in the mid '80s. Yeah, it becomes it becomes an illegal substance, um, and there are a number of factors here: the the political, the cultural, the war on drugs. Yeah. Uh, generally, just sort of the post the post '60s, um, almost like cultural revulsion yeah. against all things related to, to psychedelics, uh, and it becomes uh, just a, a part of the the subculture and the counterculture movement. Um, and even today, as we'll discuss in, in the next episode, we've seen a you know a huge um, uptick recently in the av- availability of of, uh, of various substances, uh, particularly psychedelics, yeah. for study in, under clinical um, settings in in clinical settings uh, for a host of uh, of possibilities for a host of potential uses. Uh, but still, the cultural trauma of the 1960s still permeates even the even the field, even even though the clinical opinion of these substances has shifted again. Uh, more towards the positive. Yeah, I mean, like, think about the cultural effect of that 901, 90210 episode. Yeah. It's just sitting in the back of somebody's head. It's still back there, yeah. And and they go, wait a minute, I, I can experiment with this stuff to maybe solve, cure cancer? I don't know. Remember what happened to Brendan? <laughs> yeah, like uh, there was a, there's an excellent ideas uh, CBC ideas uh, p- yeah. um, radio show uh, episode that came out recently. They did a three part series called High Culture that deals with just overall the uh, the reemergence of uh, of psychedelics uh, into uh, clinical trials and and and, uh, and clinical explorations. And uh, they were talking again to a, a psychiatrist Ingrid Pacey, and she was talking about all the different security measures they had to legally oh, take. Yeah. To yeah. keep ecstasy in the lab, it involved like bulletproof proof yeah. glass and regular yeah. investigations. I remember and- reading about this. Yeah, they had to have like special reinforced doors and yeah. all this stuff, and and uh, and it's a- incredibly expensive. We'll talk about that next episode as well. The the cost of medical grade government MDMA is enormous. <laughs> all right, so there you have it. Uh, again, 
pick up with us in the next episode, and we will get into these uh, therapeutic uh, uh, possibilities for MDMA. What what is the re- what did the research say in the past? What's the research saying now? And how can this uh, undeniably powerful substance potentially be utilized to heal us? So uh, just to remind you one more time, if you want to get in touch with us and see what we're talking about on StuffToBlowYourMind.com or what video we're shooting this week or what's going on on the podcast right now or coming up in the future, don't forget to check us out on social media. We are everywhere. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. And we are on Periscope on Fridays at noon Eastern Standard Time. All of those platforms, you can find us at the handle Blow the Mind. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you want to send us some email, you want to talk about your own uh, experiences with MDMA, your opinions on MDMA, your thoughts on television shows that have Mm -hmm. featured ecstasy, we'd love to hear from you. And hey, if it's something you don't want us to uh, put back out there into the uh, into the ether, just give us a a sign. You want to always be careful with something that you send us privately. Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, I would also love to hear from people. uh, Maybe there's something about the chemistry here that you know. Uh, either I'm sure we pronounced something wrong, but I'm but I'm also sure that there, there's more insights into the chemistry that we maybe didn't glean from the research. So let us know. Yeah. And the place to do that is blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.